This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. The lunatic asylums of old were the real houses of horror. Not just because many of the people who were locked up in them were dangerous, but because the real danger came from those appointed to care for them. Asylum means protection and safety, and that was what they were supposed to offer to the mentally ill. But somewhere along the way, things got out of control. Patients became lab rats and prisoners, and doctors, nurses, and orderlies became jailers, mad scientists, and sometimes executioners. Welcome to Destination Terror, your passport to the scariest places in the world. From haunted hotels to locations of unexplained creature sightings, we will travel to places that will provide excitement, adventure, and horror. Today we are discussing the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum in Weston, West Virginia. The asylum is easily one of the most haunted places in America, and for good reason. It was a place where many nightmares were lived out. So if you are into travel and all things scary, listen close and you might just discover your next exciting adventure destination, but hopefully not your final destination. Destination Terror is an EerieCast original podcast hosted by me, Carmen Carrion. If you would like to send us a suggestion or submit a story with your own experience, you can email them to carmencarrion at gmail.com or follow me on Twitter at Carmen Carrion. If you enjoy the show, please follow and rate Destination Terror on Spotify and Apple Podcasts to help us grow. Also, check out EerieCast.com for more scary podcasts, such as Tales from the Break Room, featuring allegedly true and terrifying stories that happened on the job. Jimmy preferred to sleep on the floor, to keep as much distance between him and his roommate as possible. They called him Patches because he would peel patches of skin off his arms, legs, and torso with his fingernails. The first time Jimmy saw him do it, he threw up and immediately begged to be moved. But there was nowhere to move him to. The hospital was already overcrowded. That was just the nights. The daytime had its own numerous odd, uncomfortable problems. Seeing other patients be treated worse than animals at every turn some caged because they were too hard to deal with, while tending to the more easy-going ones. Jimmy couldn't find even a corner of peace in this place. It was so overcrowded that there was nowhere to escape the horrors. It was no less than he deserved, to be locked inside a living hell until the day he died. He had, after all, killed his wife and their unborn son. He had tried to take his own life after, but he failed and ended up in here. 
If he had known that his wife would go into premature labor, he never would have drunk that night. He should have quit drinking as soon as he found out he was going to be a father, but he didn't, and now he had lost everything. Jimmy had blacked out behind the wheel of their 1955 Chevy Bel Air on the way to take his pregnant wife to the hospital. She had woken late in the night to tell him that she was in labor. Jimmy had just finished off a fifth of vodka. He never even heard her scream. Knowing that he deserved to suffer did not make it any easier. He was terrified every day that they would decide he needed hydrotherapy and they would come drag him out of his room and down the dark corridor to the treatment room. The orderlies would place him in a straitjacket and he would be put in a tank of icy cold water for hours at a time. It gave Jimmy the feeling of drowning mixed with claustrophobia. There was no way of knowing how long he would be there, as no clock or timer was set that he could see, but he was sure that it was hours. Many times he would pass out from exhaustion and fear just to wake up still floating in the water. After the first treatment had taken place, Jimmy fought them on the second and third. Anxiety and fear on a level he had never known would set in. But he quickly learned that fighting only meant that he would be shoved on the floor and forced in the tank for much longer when he tried to get away. So now, when he saw the orderlies around him, Jimmy would just stand very still, hoping maybe they would forget him if he could go unnoticed. And they did forget him, but not in the way that he wanted. During his next hydrotherapy session, they left Jimmy in the tank for more than three days. One of the orderlies had walked out that day and didn't bother to tell anyone Jimmy was locked in the hydro tub. By the time they found Jimmy unconscious in the tub, he was oddly enough dehydrated, exhausted, and his skin had turned a shriveled chalky white from prolonged exposure to the water. When he woke in the infirmary, he went into hysterics, screaming and wrestling with his sheets. When the nurses tried to calm him, he was uncontrollable, and finally, they sedated him. The next morning, he woke to find his doctor looking down at him. Jimmy could only remember bits and pieces of what he had said. He did understand that the doctor was going to change his treatments, and for that he was thankful. They kept him sedated until it was time for his new treatment, so he was in a fog when they shaved his head and when they attached something cold to his forehead. It wasn't until a buzzing sound, followed by a sharp pain, that started at his temples and ran through his entire body causing him to convulse, that he felt fear, but only for a moment, as consciousness faded into blissful nothingness. When Jimmy woke later, he was confused. He couldn't remember where he was or how he had gotten there. There were people staring down at him, faces that seemed familiar, yet he couldn't recall who they were. He tried to speak to ask them what was going on, but he couldn't remember how to form the words. Then finally, one of them spoke. It was a man in a white coat with a mask and a cap on. The man told his colleagues that this sort of thing happens occasionally. It's unfortunate, but statistics weren't always in their favor. The man continued by saying, poor devil, as he looked down into Jimmy's eyes. At least we helped him find some sort of peace. With that, a sheet was thrown over Jimmy's face as he could hear them walking away and talking about what they might do differently on the next one. 
Jimmy lay on the bed and couldn't move. He couldn't decide if he was paralyzed with fear or if they had done something horrible to his body. He continued to try and move to get up, but he had a strange tingling running throughout his being, like the feeling your foot has when it falls asleep, but all over. His mind strangely felt disconnected from his body. This lasted a few more minutes, and then the tingling stopped. Jimmy couldn't feel anything anymore. He was not in physical pain at all. He felt no weight from gravity, as he once did. Something a person doesn't even notice until it's no longer there. He slowly moved to his side and pushed his feet to the floor and stood up. Relief flooded through his veins at this very small thing. At least he could move now. He opened his mouth to say thank God out loud, but no sound came out. That's when he made the mistake of turning around. As soon as he did, the relief left him and was replaced by terror. If he could still breathe, Jimmy would have gasped. He was looking at a body covered by a sheet on a stretcher. Surely this was not what it seemed to be. He reached down to pull the sheet back, but such an easy task wasn't easy anymore. The sheet felt like it weighed 300 pounds, so he pulled as hard as he could, and very slowly, it moved. Finally, the whole thing bunched to one side and fell from the bed. In doing so, it exposed its morbid truth. There on the table was Jimmy's body, shaved bald, with blood trickling down from one eye. He quickly fell to the floor and tightened his fist. Sick from fear and shock, he couldn't believe what he had seen. Fear rolled into anger like a large wave that pushed over him. He tried to scream, but again, made no sound at all. Jimmy moved to pick up the ice pick looking device from the tray in front of him to throw it but couldn't even make it slightly budge. As he stood still trying to make himself see reason or find a calm spot within himself, a thought crossed his mind. This was hell. This is what he had received for what he had done to his wife and child. To have to still be in this place and not ever make a sound in it. To view the living's happiness and sadness and everything in between in their world but not to have any impact on it ever again, not even the objects in front of him. This episode is sponsored by June's Journey. What is horror to you? Monsters? Murder? Mystery? Well, if human monsters are your thing, June's Journey is the game for you, albeit in a more lighthearted tone. June's Journey is a hidden object game with a thrilling murder mystery set in the Roaring Twenties. You play as June on the hunt for your sister's murderer. Discover clues through exciting hidden object scenes with beautiful and atmospheric illustrations and music. Victory brings you closer to new plot points and suspenseful answers. When not hunting for clues, you can customize your own luxurious estate island with gardens, buildings, and decor or chat and play with or against other players too in the Detective Club, where you could even put your skills to the test in the Detective League. June's journey is both relaxing and fun to play. 
With my busy schedule, I find it's the perfect game to pick up and play whenever I've got a free moment. It doesn't demand too much time, and it's pretty satisfying solving puzzles quickly and unlocking new clues. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. There is a very old place in Weston, West Virginia that was once a true madhouse. Chalked with a long history of suffering and torture, this place should only be visited by the brave because it may drive the weak of heart insane with fear. It is called the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum. The Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum was supposed to be a place of peace and restoration, but it soon devolved into madness and destruction. Constructed between 1858 and 1881, it is the largest hand-cut stonemasonry building in North America and is reported to be the second largest in the world, next to the Kremlin. Trans-Allegheny is located in the mountain state of West Virginia and at first sight looks tranquil and inviting, with its sweeping grounds and green lawns. It looks more like a manor or an expensive boarding school than a place that once treated the mentally ill. Once acknowledged as the Weston State Hospital, the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum opened its doorways to the mentally ill in 1864. It used to be a house of horrors with extreme overcrowding, inhumane conditions, and rampant violence. Today, it comes as no shock that it is said to be extraordinarily haunted. The asylum was not always a thing of nightmares. When it was first commissioned in the early 1850s, its creation was marked as one of the first hopeful developments in centuries for mental patients. The building was created by Thomas Story Kirkbride, a doctor and crusader for the mentally ill. Kirkbride developed what would in time become the American Psychiatric Association. The building was designed by the famous architect Richard Andrews following Kirkbride's plan which called for long rambling wings arranged in a staggered pattern, assuring that each of the connecting structures received an abundance of therapeutic sunlight and fresh air. Kirkbride was inspired by the famous reformer Dorothy Dix, who sought to correct people of their misconceptions about mental illness, such as the belief that it was irreversible and best treated with darkness, force, and physical restraint. Unbelievable as the science behind some of Kirkbride's medical ideas were, it led to a more humane and effective plan of treatment for the residents of his asylums than any other practice of the time. He believed in the importance of light and fresh air and put it into practice. He suggested that asylums be built as long halls with 12-foot ceilings, plenty of windows, and ventilation that allowed for cross breezes. He also believed in freedom and that mental patients should be allowed to roam as much as possible to find stimulation for their minds. With this, they would behave better, not worse, if given more control over their own lives. Kirkbride's ideas inspired the construction of 73 hospitals across the country in the later 19th century, including Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum. When the asylum first opened its doors in 1863, it was named the West Virginia Hospital for the Insane and was a model of Thomas Kirkbride's ideas, built to house 250 patients each with their own rooms. Skilled stonemasons from Ireland and Germany were hired to contribute to the architecture that presented wide open windows, giving patients access to natural light and fresh air, 
The grounds were spectacular and built to sustain the hospital, including a working farm, dairy, waterworks, gas well, and a cemetery. It was exactly what the architect Richard Andrews had intended it to be. It was designed to make patients feel welcome, cared for, and at home. Unfortunately, disaster struck in 1881. An increase in mental health diagnosis and the stigma surrounding the disease caused the asylum to become overrun, housing almost 500 more patients than had been planned. Because of this, the hospital couldn't keep up and conditions began to decline dramatically. Patients were ultimately crammed together with up to five in a room intended for one person. The farm and dairy that had been designed to support 300 were unable to meet the increased need that came with the overcrowding. Patients soon began to suffer from malnutrition, which only aggravated their mental issues. By 1938, the asylum was six times over capacity. The patients inside were out of control and the orderlies were outnumbered. The dilemma hit its peak in the early 1950s when the hospital was holding more than 2,600 patients, more than 10 times the number that it was intended to house. After hearing the rumors about the existing conditions of the facility, the Charleston Gazette attempted to investigate and what they found was shocking. Due to the limited amount of furniture and lack of proper heating, patients were sleeping on the floors in freezing rooms. The overwhelming number of patients had caused the staff to become overworked and the focus on sanitation had decreased. The windows were covered in grime and the wallpaper was peeling from wear and decay in many places being torn by patients who panicked and tore it. The patients were in a more disturbing state than the facilities. The ones who the orderlies couldn't control were locked in cages out in the open to make room for more bedrooms for those who could be controlled. Worst of all, the asylum had become a training ground for experimental lobotomies. Walter Freeman, the famous surgeon and lobotomy advocate, had moved in and taken up practice. During his career, Freeman performed over 4,000 lobotomies, which left many perfectly healthy patients with lasting physical and cognitive damage. Freeman used the ice pick method, which involved slipping a thing, pointed rod like an ice pick, into the patient's eye socket, and then using a hammer to force it to sever the connective tissue in the brain's prefrontal cortex. This also resulted in many deaths. By the time the asylum was finally closed, the only part of the grounds that had been expanded to accommodate the large numbers was the cemetery. Thanks to the Gazette, people became aware of the horrible things happening at the asylum, and a movement to close the hospital began. Sadly, it wasn't until 1994, after more than 100 years of dilapidation, that the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum was made to close its doors forever. Many murders are said to have occurred within the walls of the asylum, but most, however, are poorly documented. According to the asylum's official website, there are about eight resident spirits inhabiting the asylum. The asylum was purchased about a decade ago by the family of Rebecca Jordan, and she said it didn't take long before the ghostly patients paid her a visit. In a room toward the back end of one wing, a patient was murdered by two others. They attempted to hang him, 
but when that failed, they placed his head under a bed frame and jumped on it until the bed frame touched the floor. There were other patients who were murdered in cold blood by their peers as overcrowding, mental illness, and poor care became a lethal combination for aggression. This room is known for its cold spots and quiet cries, which is said to be Dean, the man who was murdered in his room by his roommates. The asylum staff had the authority to send their patients into isolation when they were deemed uncontrollable. This, of course, was up to the discretion of staff that was already irritated and overworked. Isolation was so terrible that patients would do just about anything to get out of it. One story is especially surprising. A former boxer who suffered from head injuries during his career that left him violent and emotionless attempted to beat down the metal door that isolated him. He ended up ripping the door off its hinges, leaving visible dents in the steel. When he finally got the door off, he handed it to one of the nurses and calmly returned to his room. The rooms used most for isolation tend to have violent energies attached to them, with visitors reporting being pushed or scratched, as well as disembodied voices saying, get me out of here. One friendly ghost is known to the staff as Lily, a playful child spirit who is believed to have spent her entire life at the hospital. Back in the days of the asylum's operation, pregnant women who were admitted would often give birth at the hospital, their baby living there with them throughout their stay. Lily is known for her laughter as well as her interest in playing games with staff and visitors who pay her attention. Today, the once magnificent building which had been meant for healing sits abandoned, as if the patients virtually vanished into thin air. The rooms still hold medical equipment and rotted furniture and wheelchairs sit abandoned in the hallways. In 2007, tours became available for those who are interested in the macabre tales of the asylum and would like to see it firsthand. The asylum is a hotbed for the paranormal with apparition sightings, unexplainable voices and sounds, and other paranormal activity. These instances have been witnessed by visitors on many occasions. Well-known guests who have visited the asylum in the past are Sci-Fi's Ghost Hunters, Ghost Hunters Academy, the Travel Channel's Ghost Adventurers, and Paranormal Challenge. The asylum is open to guests within regular operating hours year-round, with their busiest season being the month of October. For a small fee, you can spend time during the day or night on a guided tour of the 242,000-square-foot asylum. You can find a detailed schedule and list of prices on their website www.transalleghenylunaticasylum.com Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M. 
Dot com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. James pulled his van into the driveway of 71 South Asylum Drive. The place was a large, important-looking building. At least it looked like it used to be, at one time. Now it had the appearance of being forgotten. The windows were dingy and some were busted out. The outside walls were dirty and the plants and weeds grew tall and unkept. Nature had seemed to be taking back over since no one seemed to care for the place anymore. James wasn't surprised as he knew the awful history that had happened here. The mentally ill were kept in cages and subjected to all sorts of experiments. Basic human rights had not even been considered. It made it way worse that these sorts of things happened all the way into the 90s. One might expect to read about such happenings from the late 1800s, or even the early 1900s, but to know that such a thing could take place after all the advancements of psychology since those times was truly a shameful event. It seemed everyone wanted to distance themselves from it. So the building sat as a terrifying reminder of something no one wanted to remember. At least, until now, that is. The company James worked for had been contacted to have someone give a quote on what it might cost to bring the electrical up to code. He had been sent out to just have a look around, take a few pictures and some notes, and get an idea of what they may be facing. This let James know that someone was wanting to repurpose this awful place and give it new life. Being more than happy to be a part of that, he grabbed his digital camera and notebook and headed for the front door. Once inside, he found that the overall condition was about as he had expected. It seemed that people had broken in, probably kids, and a lot had been destroyed. James was making his way around and writing a few things down while shaking his head, thinking, I hope they've got some money to spend. That's when a strange feeling came over him. It was very faint, but it was there. It was a feeling of misery and hopelessness. The feeling seemed to saturate the air around him. James stood still and took a few deep breaths. He tried to shake it off and assumed it was just his mind playing tricks on him since he knew the history. He continued down the long hallway to get a look at some of the rooms. Most of the furniture had been removed, so it made it easy to walk through. He was bent down trying to get a look behind a hole that had been busted in the wall. When he could have sworn, he felt a breath on the back of his neck. It could have easily been a piece of cloth lightly brushing against it, too. Whichever it was, it seemed distinctly intentional somehow. As if someone wanted him to know they were there. James stood up and turned around to see nothing behind him. He decided to leave the room and find another place to inspect. As he was walking down the hall, he took out the camera and figured pictures would be quicker. He snapped a few shots of some things he felt were going to be important when he thought that he heard a scream. It was very low, almost inaudible, but certainly a scream. James perked up and his senses quickly became razor sharp as adrenaline pulsed through his body. He heard it again, but this time it lasted longer than before. Strange, 
It felt like someone was trying to scream directly in his ear. He could feel the anger and frustration mixed with tension that could be cut with a knife. Though the only physical sign of it was an almost whisper of a scream. James began walking a little faster, going back toward the front of the building, thinking getting closer to the sunlight that would be shining through the windows might somehow melt away this horrible feeling he had. He rounded the corner and he stopped, paralyzed with fear. He could have sworn he saw the outline of a bald man walking into one of the rooms. James inhaled and then exhaled and mustered all the courage he had and yelled, Is someone there? It seemed crazy to be afraid of drawing attention to himself. After all, he knew he was there alone. Whatever it was he thought he had seen wasn't a person. People aren't transparent. He waited for a moment for a response, and there was nothing. So he took a step forward to keep going to the front of the building. That's when whatever he had saw seemed to move back out of the room it had went into. It began to come toward him in what James could only describe as a walking float. As it got closer, he could tell that it had a human face. There was also blood trickling down from one of its eyes. It stopped about halfway to James and stared straight into his eyes. He felt cold and depressed. It was almost as if this spirit's emotions filled the entire facility. James stood in a trance, not even breathing for over a minute. Then he pulled himself back and the spirit bolted towards him. Its mouth was open like it was screaming, but everything was totally quiet. James ran the other direction, not wanting to be any closer to it, and certainly didn't want to make any physical contact, if that was even possible. He kept running as hard and as fast as he could, not even paying attention to his surroundings. At this point, it was fight or flight, and James was trying to fly. Soon he started to become winded and slowed down. Whatever place he had ended up in seemed darker and more damp, than where he had been before. James immediately regretted the direction he had ran, as he couldn't remember exactly where that was. Around a few corners, down some stairs, and to nowhere. It was dark and there was an angry spirit and now he was lost. He took the small flashlight off his side, breathed in deeply, and turned it on. Now he could see the room he was in, it had small blue tiles going most of the way up the walls. There were concrete floors, and as James looked down, he realized this might be the worst place to end up. There were drains in the floors, and it was a large open room. It was a surgical room. He quickly looked around for the doorway and began to make his way out when he stepped on something that seemed to stick to his shoe. He reached down and pulled it out. Upon close inspection, it seemed to be a fancy ice pick. It didn't take long for James to figure out what it was. Then he remembered the face of the spirit in the hallway, having blood running from one eye. He dropped it on the ground as if its horrible use might somehow rub off on him. Then he looked up and decided he wouldn't be going back the way he had came.
James began to walk the way he had been running, assuming there would be another way out. The flashlight was only big enough to see what was right in front of him. With every few slow steps, he would hear noise around him. Things falling or thumps on the walls. The constant feeling of someone brushing their hands lightly over him kept him uneasy. James fought the desire to point the flashlight in any direction but straight forward, knowing he didn't want to know what might be making the noises. Then he started hearing voices, so quiet it felt like they could be in his head, yelling and moaning and crying. Doors creaking opened and closed. It occurred to James that somehow the spirits here continued to live out moments of the past, like they were in repeat of some moment from long ago. Maybe just under the surface of reality, this was always going on, never stopping. Only usually it's so faint they can't be noticed. James had been dumb enough to come alone, and now in all the silence he could hear them stuck in one horrible moment forever. There was no wonder hopeless misery was in the air at this place. Finally, he could see a small bit of light in the middle of a hallway up ahead. He made his way quickly to it. There was a window that had been boarded up. James began knocking the boards loose, revealing the sunlight. He had never been so glad to see it. Once the boards were off, he climbed up and pushed his legs through. Reaching up to adjust his grip so he could push himself through the window, he leaned his head back. There were eyes that met his, only inches from his face. The spirit grabbed for any part of James that it could. Everywhere it tried to grab, felt like ice was burning him. With one final big push, he fell outside onto the ground. He got up and ran around the building, jumped in his van, and was gone. Down the driveway and out on the road, James sighed in relief when he looked down at his arms and could see bruises and scratch marks beginning to appear. He took another deep breath and stepped on the gas. Thank you for joining us to explore the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum. Tune in next week as we discuss the Chernobyl nuclear power plant in Ukraine, site of one of the world's worst man-made catastrophes. I'm Carmen Carrion. Remember, you can send me suggestions and stories of haunted places to my email, carmencarrion at gmail.com, or follow me on Twitter at Carmen Carrion. Be sure to check out eeriecast.com for more terrifying podcasts. Until next time, be safe out there until I see you at our next destination.